You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The Bible reading today is Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds and as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough from before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in the kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and they gave them whatever they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There, there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was about 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have brought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you must, who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover, must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, let's pray together as we come to look at God's word. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, we so need your help as we come to look at your word. I definitely need your help. Uh, please, Father, uh, help me to speak faithfully and, and clearly as I, as I ought uh, from your word. Uh, help us all to have ears to hear your word uh, and hearts and minds that are open and ready to receive your word and be changed by it. 
uh, in particular to trust your word and to obey your word. Uh, For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, How do you work out if someone is trustworthy? In general, I think we've got to try to avoid two extremes. On the one extreme, we've got to avoid being overly trusting of others. You know, kind of naively opening up your life to absolutely everyone, no matter whether they've shown themselves to be trusting or not. That's a path that really can lead to you being taken advantage of, to you being heard or, or rejected by others. Some of you have probably experienced that. But on the other hand, we've got to try to avoid being overly untrusting. Uh, automatically uh, closing ourselves off to all relationships, not trusting anyone uh, for fear of being hurt or rejected by others. As understandable as that might be for some of you who have been hurt and rejected a whole lot, uh, the reality is over time that can lead to a place where you just feel incredibly isolated and lonely. The truth is, if you want to truly know and love people and be known and loved by people, uh, in the end, you've got to answer this question, is this person trustworthy? And the only way you can really answer that question is if over time someone has shown themselves to be a person of integrity. They're a person of faithfulness. They're someone who is true to their words. So you know that it's safe to to open yourself up to them, to be vulnerable to them, to trust them. It's safe for you to do that. What about with God? All of us, uh, however consciously, are faced with the question, is the Lord trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? And like with people, there's a sense in which we don't want to be overly trusting of God. I'm not kind of saying don't trust God, but I am saying let's not tell people you've got to trust God, even though there's no evidence for trusting God. There ought to be evidence for trusting God so that we don't have to worry about being hurt or rejected when we trust him. On the other hand, we don't want to be overly untrusting when it comes to God, kind of automatically assuming that he's not trustworthy for fear of being heard or or rejected by God. At some point, all of us have got to answer this question, is the Lord trustworthy? And the only way we can answer that question is by seeing, has God shown himself over time to be a God of integrity, of faithfulness, a God who is true to his words? And the emphatic answer of today's passage is yes and absolutely. The Lord has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy, so you can give your life to trusting and obeying him. The Lord has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy, so you can give your life to trusting and obeying him. So let's get into the passage first. We're going to look at this passage through the lens of the fact that the Lord has done absolutely everything that he said he would do. Uh, He's fulfilled his promises to a whole bunch of people. First, uh, he's fulfilled his promises to Pharaoh. Not promises of blessing, uh, but promises of judgment. Take a look at verse 29, chapter 12, uh, verse 29. Uh, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt uh, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne 
are to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. You might remember in chapter 11, verses 4 to 8, the Lord told Pharaoh that this was what he was going to do. He was going to bring the the destructive plague of his judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. And here he does just that. Now, some of you feel uh, pretty emotionally uncomfortable about that. And last week, I talked about the fact, I explained how how this judgment of God is just and fair and righteous, uh, despite how we might feel about it. For today, I just want you to notice that simple point. The Lord predicts this judgment, and then he brings this judgment. The Lord does what he said he will do. Uh, The Lord keeps his promises to Pharaoh. A second, in verses 31 to 35, he keeps his promises to Moses. You might remember last week, Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, uh, the Lord said to Moses that after this final and climactic plague, uh, Pharaoh wouldn't just let them leave Egypt, he would personally drive the Israelites out of Egypt. He'd, he'd practically beg them to leave. Uh, and in verses 31 and 32, that's what Pharaoh does. Exodus 12, verse 31, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. Pharaoh wastes no time here doing exactly what the Lord said he would do. Now, he doesn't wait till the morning like other times after other plagues. He summons Moses and Aaron into his courts in the middle of the night and he practically begs them and the Israelites to leave. And notice how emphatic Pharaoh is here. But in the past, he's kind of said God's people could leave. I mean, you remember in chapter 8, verse 25, uh, he said that the Israelites could uh, go and worship the Lord, uh, but they had to offer their sacrifices in Egypt. That they weren't allowed to leave the land. Then in chapter 10, verse 11, Pharaoh said, okay, you can go and leave the land and offer sacrifices to the Lord, but only the men can go, but no women and children. And then in chapter 10, verse 24, he said, okay, you can go, you can leave the land, you can take men, women and children, but you can't take any of your livestock to offer sacrifices. Right here is the very first time that Pharaoh gives this kind of unqualified commission, uh, permission rather, uh, for all the Israelites, right, men, women and children, uh, to leave Egypt with their animals and worship the Lord their God. You see how the Lord keeps his promise to Moses. After this plague, Pharaoh will drive you out of Egypt. Uh, Also, in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the Lord said to Moses, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, uh, so that when uh, you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask uh, her neighbor and the woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, uh, which uh, you will put on your sons and daughters, uh, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." Right, that promise is repeated in Exodus chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. 
Uh, the Lord's promising here that, that not only is, is he going to liberate his people from their slavery in Egypt, uh, but he's going to provide for their every need uh, through the abundant wealth of Egypt. The, the wealth that they themselves as slaves in the Egyptian economy have helped to generate. And now we're going to come back to this idea of plundering the Egyptians in a bit. But for now, I just want you to see that in verses 35 and 36, this is exactly what happens. The Lord made a promise to Moses, you will not leave Egypt empty handed. You will plunder the Egyptians. And the Lord fulfills that promise in verses 35 and 36. Uh, the Lord fulfills his promises to Moses. Third, he fulfills his promises to Abraham. Uh, we saw from the very start of the book of, uh, book of Exodus, you remember in Exodus chapter 1, uh, we saw how we're, that we're supposed to read the book of Exodus as a continuation of the story of Genesis, right? The story of how God's at work uh, fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham, in, in particular the promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and Genesis chapter 15, uh, verses 13 to 16. And we see those promises being fulfilled in this passage. For example, uh, in Genesis 12, verse 2, the Lord promised Abraham that he was going to multiply his descendants so incredibly that they would become a great nation. And that's what we see in this passage, isn't it? Look at chapter 12, verse 37. Israel is leaving Egypt. And we see that they've become a great nation. The Israelites uh, journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. Uh, there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Right, 600,000 men plus women and children, that's well over a million people. In large part, the Lord has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. The single family that went down to Egypt, the family of Jacob that's listed in Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 has become this million strong people, a great nation. The Lord's fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He also said to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3 that through Abraham's descendants, all peoples on earth would be blessed. Right, People of every nation would share in the wonderful blessing of being known and loved by God, of, of being a part of God's people. And we see the beginnings of that promise being fulfilled in Exodus 12, verse 38. Look at verse 38. And we're told that the Israelites are leaving Egypt, uh, but, verse 38, many other people, well, literally a, a mixture of people, went up with the Israelites and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. You see here, the blessing that the Lord promised to Abraham, the blessing of being known and loved by the Lord, being a part of his people, that blessing is just beginning to overflow to the nations. As some of the Egyptians, many of the Egyptians indeed, choose to leave Egypt with the Israelites and become a part of the people of God. And third... In Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, the Lord made another promise to Abraham. He said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That sounds a lot like Israel in Egypt, right? Verse 14, But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. That's what we've just seen in the plagues. And afterward, 
they will come out with great possessions. So I note again that that promise as far back as Genesis 15, that Israel will not leave Egypt empty-handed. They'll come out with great possessions. Uh, the Lord continues in verse 15. Uh, you, however, will go to your ancestors uh, in peace uh, and be buried at a good old age. Uh, and in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here uh, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And you might hear that promise and you say, wait a second. You know, in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that they were going to come out after, out of Egypt after 400 years. And in Exodus 12, where well, we see that they came out after 430 years. I told you God's not trustworthy, you say. But I mean, if you look at it a little bit more closer, closely, uh, in Genesis 15, verse 16, God says that his people are going to come out uh, sometime in the fourth generation, when the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. Of course, the, the sometime in the fourth generation is a much more approximate term, isn't it? It's a, a time frame that could refer to 400 years or even up to 430 years. It's a time that's uh, under the sovereign uh, command of God, because only he knows when the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. Uh, so Moses, as he's recording uh, the, the time when Israel leaves Egypt, makes a whole lot of the fact that they leave right when God said they would. I take a look here in verses 40 and 41, Exodus 12, 40 and 41. Now, the length of time that the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. You see how faithful God is. He fulfilled his promises to Pharaoh. He fulfilled his promises to Moses and to Abraham and in verse 42, he fulfilled his promise to Israel. Look at verse 42. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. The Egyptians believed that Ra, the, the, the sun god, the, the most powerful of their whole pantheon of gods, they believed that Ra at night time had to go and hide. Uh, that there was a whole lot of darkness and chaos at night. Uh, so at night time, Ra was off duty. Ra was having a rest. Uh, he was out of action. Not the God of Israel we see here. Exodus 12, verse 42. The Lord promised his people, the Israelites, that even in the middle of the night, when he brought this destructive judgment upon Egypt, even then, when darkness and chaos seemed to reign everywhere, even then the Lord would be keeping vigil over his people. He would be watching over his people. Ra might be taking a break at night time, but the Lord God of Israel is keeping watch. Right, Ra might be sleeping, but the Lord God of Israel, as Psalm 121 says, does not slumber. We might slumber, but our Lord watches over us at all times. In the middle of the night, when you can't sleep, when you're filled with anxiety, concern and worry about life, the Lord God is watching over you, just as he was watching over Israel in Egypt. And it's the Lord's God, uh, Lord God's faithfulness, faithfulness in watching over us that ought to motivate us to faithfully honour him. That's what we see in Exodus 12, verse 42. But I hope you've seen so far 
that the Lord has absolutely done what he said he would do in this passage. He's absolutely worthy of your trust. And because the Lord did what he said he would do, the Egyptians did what he said he would do. You remember last week, Exodus 11 verse 6, the Lord said that when his judgment came in this plague of the firstborn, there would be loud wailing throughout Egypt. He said that, then in verse 30, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house that, uh, in which some, uh, without someone dead. And in the midst of that loud wailing, uh, we see in verses 31 to 33 that the Egyptians practically beg the Israelites to leave, just as the Lord said they would. Now, I talked about these verses earlier. I don't want to rehash all of that, but I I do want you to notice just a certain irony in these verses. The irony is that that, that the people who have oppressed the Israelites for centuries are now down on their knees begging the Israelites to leave. It's an incredible role reversal, isn't it? The oppressors begging their slaves to leave. You see, all along, God has been telling Moses, if you read through Exodus so far, that when his people eventually leave Egypt, they're not going to be getting out by the skin of their teeth. You know, they're not going to be sneaking out the back door. When they leave Egypt, it's going to be because of a total victory, a complete conquest. And that's what we see in this passage. The Lord's victory over Egypt is so completely comprehensive that the Egyptians are begging the Israelites to do God's will, begging the Israelites to leave Egypt and worship the Lord their God, just as he said they would. The Egyptians do what the Lord said they would, and the Israelites do what the Lord said they would. Look in verses 34 and 39. The Israelites leave Egypt immediately with their unleavened bread. You remember uh, last week the Lord said in Exodus 12 verse 11, uh, this is how you are to eat the Passover. Remember, you've got to have your cloak tucked in, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Uh, And the Lord says, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The point being, after you eat this meal, you've got to be ready to leave immediately. Right? No time to, to go and gather up the family possessions. You've got to hit the road. And then in verses 15 to 20, there were those instructions about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Once again, the point being, no time to wait for bread to rise. Just take your unleavened bread, uh, take it with you and and hit the road. Leave Egypt immediately. So in verses 34 and 39, it's no surprise when we see the Israelites leaving Egypt immediately. Whether they don't want to wait for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to have second thoughts, they're on the road carrying their unleavened bread, just as the Lord said they would be. Right? Not, but not before they've plundered the Egyptians. And we saw earlier, right, that this plundering of the Egyptians is a fulfillment of God's promise. A promise that goes all the way back to his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 and his promises to Moses in Exodus 3 and Exodus 11. Right, through the, this uh, plundering, the Lord uh, is really justly providing for his people. His people who for 400 years, uh, uh, through their slavery, have, have kept the Egyptian economy growing, uh, but have economically uh, have absolutely nothing to show for that. 
So consider this to be centuries of back pay coming to the Israelites now as they leave Egypt. The Lord is providing for his people. But there's another irony here, isn't there? If you think about throughout history, historically, how warfare worked, if an army invaded another country and defeated their enemies... Uh, Before they left, they would plunder their enemies. They would pillage them and loot them. Uh, So the irony here is that Israel is leaving Egypt as if they've had this mighty victory in battle, as if they're a mighty conquering army. Uh, Of course, they haven't had a victory at all. They've done nothing. But God has had a victory. The Lord has had a victory. The Lord has defeated all their enemies on their behalf. He's had this incredible victory. But now as the people of God, they get to share in the spoils of his victory. They are like more than conquerors, a mighty conquering army. That's why in verses 41 and 51, The people of Israel are described as divisions, could also be translated as hosts or armies. Israel leaves Egypt as a mighty conquering army. All this reminds me of Paul's words at the end of Romans chapter 8. Remember Paul speaks there about how we who are in Christ, we who were once slaves, slaves to sin and death and condemnation, have been made more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Right? It's not because of what we've done, but because Christ our Lord has had this incredible victory. He's defeated our every enemy, bearing our condemnation in our place on the cross, conquering sin and death, raising up from the grave. And so as those who are united with Christ by faith, we are more than conquerors in him. We share in his victory and we get to share in the spoils of his victory, all the blessings that come from being united with Christ. We are more than conquerors just like Christ Jesus, because Christ our Lord, uh, just like the Israelites rather, uh, because Christ our Lord has had this incredible victory. Uh, Well, in verses 43 uh, to 49, uh, we see that because the Lord has done exactly what he said he would do, he's been faithful. Uh, The Israelites are called to do what the Lord tells them to do when it comes to the Passover. The Lord's faithfulness to them uh, is supposed to motivate their faithfulness to him. Uh, So what do we learn about the Passover uh, in these verses, verses 43 to 49? The first thing we learn uh, is that the Passover points us towards Jesus' death uh, and towards the Lord's Supper, the meal that we share, that helps us to remember Jesus' death. I wanted to to kind of make that connection right up front uh, rather than at the end uh, because I want to make some application on the way through these verses. Uh, So there's a connection to uh, Jesus' death and the Passover in these verses. Look at at verse 46, uh, chapter 12, verse 46. Uh, The Passover lamb must be eaten inside the house. Uh, Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. Do not break any of the bones. Note that. Then flick over to John's gospel. If you're a quick Bible flicker, flick over to John chapter 19, verses 31 to 33. Uh, This is John's account of Jesus' death. John chapter 19 from verse 31. 
And now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies to be left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Breaking the legs of someone who was crucified was a way of speeding up their death. That they were no longer able to push themselves up with their legs to help themselves breathe. They had to collapse and therefore they died more quickly. So John 19 verse 32, we see the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Well, you see the connection here to Exodus 12 verse 46. The Passover lamb wasn't allowed to have any broken bones and here Jesus does not have any broken bones. Now, this is a point that John's been making right from the start of his gospel. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 uh, saw Jesus and said, This is the Lamb of God, the, the ultimate Passover Lamb, who will give his life to take away the sins of the world. Now, that's what we're seeing here in John chapter 19. Jesus uh, is the ultimate Passover Lamb. Are the one whose blood is shed in our place for our sins. Right? The Passover points us towards Jesus' death and it points us towards the Lord's Supper, the meal that, that helps us to remember Jesus' death. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 7, uh, we read this. Uh, then uh, came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent uh, Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So you read that, uh, having just looked at Exodus 12, you're thinking, hey, we're in Exodus 12. This is the background here. The, the disciples are preparing the, the uh, Passover in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and down in verses 19 and 20, when uh, Jesus actually shares the Passover with his disciples, he says this. Uh, and Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Right, just as the, the blood of all those Passover lambs in Israel was shed in the place of the Israelites for their sins, as their substitute, so also the blood of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, was shed in our place for our sins as our substitute. Poured out for you, Jesus says, in your place for your sins. The Passover points us towards Jesus' death and towards the Lord's Supper that helps us to remember Jesus' death. As we eat that bread, his body broken. Uh, as we drink that cup uh, that reminds us of his blood shed. A second, that the Passover uh, is intended by God to distinguish his people, uh, to make his people clear. Uh, take a look in verse 43. Uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? This is a meal that is only for the people of God. Right? No foreigner is allowed to eat of it. 
How is it, they, how is it that they know uh, who's a part of God's people? That's an important question. Well, the answer is that it's everyone who's willing to display their private trust in the Lord, their faith in the Lord, their commitment to being a part of his people by being circumcised. Right? But because circumcision uh, in this covenant uh, was the public physical sign of being a part of God's people. So take a look at it in verse 44, verses 44 and 45. Any slave uh, you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat of it. This is not about uh, some sort of racial distinction or ethnic distinction. It's a spiritual distinction. Take a look in verse 48. A foreigner residing among you, someone of different race or ethnicity, like one of the Egyptians who came up out of Egypt, for example, a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part, note this, like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. Right? This isn't about race or ethnicity. But this is about a spiritual distinction. It's not saying to people, because you don't share in our bloodline, you're, not, you're excluded from the Passover. No, it's not saying that. Non-Israelites are welcome to share in the Passover. They've just got to be willing to, to display their private trust in the Lord, their, their commitment to being a part of his people uh, by um, bearing, by being circumcised. Right? Because circumcision is the public physical sign of being a part of God's people. And the Passover is a public meal. You see, God wants the Passover to distinguish who his people are. He wants it to be as clear as possible when his people share in the Passover uh, which people are his and which people are not his. And he wants his people to preserve that distinction as far as possible uh, by obeying these instructions. Now, who's responsible for making sure they obey these instructions? On one level, of course, it's every single Israelite who hears the instructions. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that Moses and Aaron, uh, and indeed the elders of Israel, uh, would have been expected to take a lead uh, in ensuring God's people obeyed these instructions. That's why, back in Exodus chapter 4, uh, it was a pretty big deal, right? deadly, uh, that Moses' own son wasn't circumcised. It's also why, back in chapter 12, verse 21, when Moses received the Passover instructions from the Lord, in verse 21, the first thing he did was gather together the elders of Israel uh, to give them the instructions for the Passover. And this is why when we share in the Lord's Supper here at DPC, we say that the elders of the church invite those to share, uh, people to share in the Lord's Supper uh, who've displayed their private trust in the death of the Lord Jesus uh, by being baptised, which is the public physical sign of being a part of God's new covenant people. That's why we say that. It's because we're convinced that God wants the Lord's Supper to distinguish who his people are. He wants everyone to be as clear as possible on which people are his and which people are not his. 
Now, we might feel uncomfortable about that. I understand that. We do live in an age where uh, we're very uncomfortable about drawing lines of distinction between people as a general rule. But God thinks that this is for our spiritual, for the spiritual good of his people and for those who aren't a part of his people yet. It's good for us to say, uh, you're not a part of God's people yet. You need to trust in Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. It's good for that to be clear. Uh, the Passover is intended to distinguish God's people. Third, uh, the Passover is intended by God to unify his people. Uh, take a look in, in verses 46 and 47. Uh, the Passover lamb must be eaten inside the house. Uh, take none of the meat outside the house. Uh, do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. I reckon we see God's intention to unify his people through this meal in four main ways in these verses. The, the first uh, is that every household is, has, has got to have one lamb. Now, that's quite a bit of lamb, depending on the size of the household. The point is, uh, you've got to have enough people in your house uh, to eat a whole lamb in the Passover without there being much left over. Right? This is a meal intended by God to promote welcome and hospitality and community. Right? That's, what, that's God's intention for the meal. Second, uh, notice that no part of the lamb is allowed to be taken outside. Right? Everyone's got to eat together inside. Oh, like when we share in the Lord's Supper, where we understand it not to be uh, some sort of private and individualized communion with the Lord. It's just me and Jesus having a moment here. No, it's the people of God together having communion with their Lord. This is a community event, a corporate event. A third, notice uh, that the lamb's bones are not to be broken. We've already seen how that points us towards Jesus, but uh, at a more basic level, it just means uh, no one can rip off a piece of lamb and go and eat it by themselves. Right? The whole point is, let's eat this meal together. A fourth, notice in verse 47, that all of God's people are to be present to celebrate this meal together. This is why when we share in the Lord's Supper here at DPC, maybe may, may we do that soon, uh, as soon as is safe. But when we share in the Lord's Supper, this is why we, we try to get all of our community together, as chaotic and messy as that might be. Because we think this is a meal that all of God's people should celebrate. So in verses 43 to 49, where we see that the Passover and the Lord's Supper that the Passover points towards uh, is intended by God to both distinguish and unify his people. You might have questions about that. By all means, get on the post-church soon. Happy to talk more. Uh, but uh, for, for this passage, I do hope you've been convinced that the Lord has demonstrated his trustworthiness. He's demonstrated his trustworthiness. The, the Egyptians did what he said they would do. The Israelites did what he said they would do. Uh, and most importantly, he did exactly what he said he would do. He has shown himself to be trustworthy. He's demonstrated his trustworthiness. Uh, so you can give your life to trusting and obeying him. Uh, just as the Israelites did in verses 50 and 51. You see there in verse 50, all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. They, did, they trusted the Lord. They obeyed the Lord. They did exactly what he said. 
Because, verse 51, that very day, the Lord uh, brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. You see, ultimately, the Israelites uh, knew that they could entrust themselves to the Lord uh, because he'd brought them out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. And that's where the rubber hits the road for us, isn't it? We can know that the Lord is worthy of our trust, so that we can give our lives to trusting and obeying him because he's set us free from our slavery to sin, bringing us out of our slavery to sin by the blood of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. The Lord has demonstrated his trustworthiness. He's given his whole life for you in Christ on the cross. So you can give your whole life to trusting and obeying him. Please pray with me. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray that your word would achieve its purposes in our hearts and minds, even in this moment. Uh, By the power of your spirit, I pray that you would stir up in our hearts uh, a fresh uh, sense of conviction and dependency and trust in you and a willingness to obey you, uh, to do what you've called us to, uh, because we've been convinced uh, that you are such a faithful Lord, a God who does exactly what you've promised. Uh, We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.